on in our verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Corinthians. So today we're going to be heading out through uh, uh, chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5 today. And you remember last week, Paul was basically um, talking about the difference between the temporal or the transient versus the eternal and what we should be keeping our eyes on. And actually, uh, today he's going to kind of continue that thought as we start on, uh, really dealing with the temporal and the internal. And then finally, he's going to finish up this chapter talking about and describing the ministry of reconciliation, which he says that he's a minister of. It's the, it's the ministry that he's been given. And the truth is, is that we're all ministers of the ministry of reconciliation. We are all ambassadors for Christ. And it's our goal to persuade others about the truthiness of the gospel of Christ. Amen? And without further ado, we're just going to jump right into it today. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing, but on our, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Hallelujah. So this seems to be, uh, to me, an awkward place to put a chapter break because it's quite obvious he's finishing what he was talking about last week. And you'll remember when we lift off in verses 16 and 18 of uh, chapter 4, he said, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." And he, he, he goes from that thought, and it seems to me to be a, uh, a continued thought. It is a, he's continuing to talk about this idea of the things that are seen and the things that are unseen. And he's making the point uh, here, which I think is great, is he's, he's, he's talking about, first he talked about the things that are seen and the things that are unseen, about what we're looking for to the future. And the next thing he jumps on is talking about our earthly tent. And he's basically talking about the, the body that you live in. It's our earthly tent. It's our, our temporary meat suit to get us through until God goes ahead and gives us an eternal body that is glorified in heaven. Amen? So that's, that's the thing that we're looking forward to. And he stays in this, this same frame of mind. And he starts and he says, for we know. Isn't that amazing that we can know? You know, one of the things that's amazing about Christianity is we don't have to wonder. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to, to, to think about, hey, did we do enough to measure up? Every other religion in the world, it's about somehow making yourself right with God. You have to perform. You have to do so many things. And you can never really know. You're just hoping that you do enough that the scales tip. But Christianity is different because we don't have to do anything except for trust in Jesus Christ because Jesus did all the work. And I don't know about you, but that's an amazing thing. One, because if we tried to do the work, every single one of us would fail. We already have failed. The Bible says that none of us is righteous. No, not one. But he sent his son to pay the price for it. And because of that, we can know. Because we're not confused if Jesus did enough. The Bible says that he rose from the grave and sits at the right hand of God. And him rising again was proof that he was who he says he was. And he did what he said he was going to do. We don't have to be unsure. We can know. We can know. That's an amazing thing. That's, that's what gives us hope because we can be certain. 
And the question is, well, what is it that we're certain of? And that's that if we put our, like I said, if we put our trust in Jesus, that he rose, he died and rose again in newness of life. And if we put our trust in him, then, then our old man is dead. And we rose again in newness of life as well. And ultimately, in the end, we're going to be resurrected in brand new bodies. And we're going to spend eternity with Jesus. You know, one of the things that Paul defended in his first letter to the Corinthians was this idea of resurrection. Because they were saying, that no, the resurrection isn't going to happen. That's not a thing. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You see, Paul defended the idea of resurrection because the whole crux of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he, didn't, if he rose from the dead, then there is resurrection. If, he, if there is no resurrection, then he didn't rise from the dead and we're all in a mess. But the reality is, is that he, he did. And this is important because in that same chapter, in verse 50, he says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. But we will be changed. We will put on immortality. We will be made brand new. And this idea of resurrection is exactly what Paul is talking about here. And he's using this analogy of a tent. You know that the Bible says that Paul was a tent maker. This is what he did. He understood this, this idea of, a, of an earthly dwelling, this tent that we're in. And it's temporary. It's not, uh, it's not made to last. And the truth is, as he talks about, he says that, that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. Now that's interesting too because what we're in right now, it's a tent. Anybody ever done some tent camping? You ever been hit with a strong wind in a tent? And your tent just starts flopping around. It can't hold up to stuff. You know, you just set your tent up real quick and you got to go run and do something. You look back and it's blowing away down the street. It doesn't really hold the wind out. If it rains hard enough, it doesn't matter if you have a rain guard or not. Rain's getting through. Like they're just not really structurally sound for a long-term dwelling they'll get you through the night but they got some problems if you think about it but then he says that the building that we have from god even if our earthly home is destroyed it's a building a house not made with hands it's this picture of something that's structurally sound that's going to last it's it's not going to go ahead and just be blown around by the wind even if our home is destroyed, and to be clear, he's talking about even if we die, then God has something better for us. And he's not actually referring to heaven. Some people say, oh, he's talking about we're going to go live in heaven. Well, no, it says that this house that we have is eternal in the heavens. So he's actually talking about the, our resurrected body that we're going to have. And he says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our earth, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. You know, the truth is, is that in our, our body, we do groan. Our, we have stuff that's not right. The reality is that sin has had its way on this earth and even in, in our bodies until the last enemy is defeated and put under Jesus' foot like a, a footstool, which is death, we're still susceptible to some stuff. And our bodies aren't perfect. I mean, we have a pandemic going around right now demonstrating that these earthly tents aren't perfect. But 
we're groaning, we're longing, we're putting up with this, looking forward to the future, which is this heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not found, be found naked. This idea of not being found naked is, is that when, when we die, we're not just going to be going up to heaven just as a spirit. We're not going to be, our spirit isn't going to be naked. It's still going to have a dwelling. We're getting a new body. And we're not going to be found naked when we put that on. And this new body is perfect. No sickness, no disease, no more tears, and certainly no more groaning and longing for something else. Amen? Then in verses 4 through 5, he says, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Like I said, there's a reality that while we're here in this body, we are burdened because it's not perfect. Until Jesus returns, until we're resurrected and have a new body, there are some shortcomings that we have to put up with. We still feel pain. We, because we live in this fallen world, the body is susceptible to all sorts of issues. Cancer, disease, viruses, bacteria, even mental health issues were susceptible to all kinds of brokenness as a result of the fall. From the moment we are born, we begin to die. That's the reality. That's what we're marching on to. Should Jesus uh, tarry and not come back before each one of us lays our head down for the last time, from the moment we're born, we begin to die. So we groan. We're burdened by this, so our bodies, we, we groan, longing for something better. But he says, not that we would just die and be unclothed, not that we would just be that spirit floating around, but we're looking forward to something more, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Looking forward to a new body, as Paul puts it, being further closed. And at the, the moment that, that we get that new body, our resurrected body, it puts on a brand new life. It takes everything else that was behind us is gone. No more sickness, no more pain, none of that stuff. We get a new life and a new body in that moment. And the Bible then goes on to say, Paul says that the Spirit is our guarantee. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us a Spirit as a guarantee. The fact that the Holy Spirit takes residence inside of you is a guarantee that God is going to give you what He said He's going to give you. This word here, guarantee, is actually a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew origin. And what it comes from, the Hebrew origin means it's a pledge. Or it's a, to, a, to purchase money of a property given in advance as a security for the rest. Or it's earnest money. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us. He's a, a down payment of, on our eternal future with Christ. It's God saying that I'm going to do what I've said I'm going to do. He is our, our guarantee of this resurrected body and spending it in eternity with Him and not away from Him. Amen. So Paul says, because of this, we are always of good courage. In verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home 
with the Lord. That very guarantee of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that very guarantee is what Paul says gives us good courage. Because it's true, we grow now, we look around, I don't know about you guys, but I look around the world right now and I, I, I feel like it's, it's getting worse than it's ever been, at least in my own lifetime. I imagine there were those who lived in the Great Depression or lived in times when slavery was, was, a, was, a, was actually happening in this country and they might argue and say, no, it's still pretty good. But when I look around, I, it seems like things are going crazy and things are getting worse and worse every single day. And man, it would be nice to not live in a world where everything is crazy as it is right now. But we know that even though we've grown now, we're looking forward to a better future. And we know that right now that while we're in this body, we're away from the Lord. At least physically. We're not in heaven with Him right now. We're, we're, we're here on earth in this body. Now the truth is, is that I don't think God wants us to loathe this life. We should actually enjoy what we have now to the best of your ability. Always recognize where it comes from, that it comes from God, but we should enjoy it right now. We should, and we should do everything that we can to fully live and to fully serve God in everything that we do to the best of our ability. But this world, even the best that this world has to offer, is nothing compared to what we will have in eternity. It is nothing why the Bible says better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, the best that we have right here is going to be fail so far in comparison we probably don't even have a way to describe how much different it's going to be. And this time that we're living right now is just temporary. It's just a drop in the bucket. It's such a small part of our life, of our eternal lives, even though sometimes it feels like it's taking forever. Even though we're, we're just wanting it to get over, what we see now just isn't perfect. And that's the reality of the situation. We still live in a fallen world. And until the earth is recreated, that's the situation that we're in. It is a fallen world. It's a broken world full of fallen and broken people, those who don't know Christ. And we groan and look for something better. And like I said, the, the earth has even fallen. And it's, the earth is groaning as well. This is what the book of Romans says. Yeah, Paul said in, in chapter 8, 22 through 23, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the earth is groaning, waiting to be remade, just like our bodies are growing, waiting to be remade, to put on new bodies. And that's why we have that. That's why this, this, we're seeing so many new earthquakes and, and uh, floods and tornadoes and all kinds of man made disasters, hurricanes. This world is groaning, looking forward to being remade. But as Christians, we have a hope. We have a better hope. We know that we can look forward to something better. We know that as soon as we're absent from this body, then we are with the Lord. That's why he says we are of good cheer. We don't walk by faith, or we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't look around at the world around us and say, man, it's all a mess. I might as well just give up. But instead, we look forward to the future with a better hope by faith 
that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And then he says, yes, we are of good courage and we would actually rather be away from this body and at home with the Lord. How many know that's going to be better? That is going to be better. Now, I'm not saying that we should all just go out and find a way to end it as fast as we can. The truth is, is you got something to do while you're here. The truth is, there's people that need to hear the gospel, and if you weren't here, they wouldn't hear it. You know, one time, one of the, the, the most poignant memories of a, of a youth conference I ever had, we went to it, and, and the guy got up there and he preached his heart out. And all these kids gave their life to the Lord. It was like the whole place. Thousands of kids gave their life to the Lord. And then I, I was talking to somebody afterwards and I heard them say, man, I wish Jesus would just come back right now. Make sure all these kids get in. And I just remember a pain in my heart thinking, but what about the rest of them? What about the rest of the kids that haven't said yes? That's what we're here to do. We're going to see in a little while that we have the ministry of reconciliation while we're here on this earth is so we can tell people about Jesus so that they can have the very same hope that we have, that they can look forward to the very same future that we look forward to. Because we know there is something better coming and we don't, we're of good courage. We don't have to be afraid. See, that's the great news about being a Christian is that even if you die, it's not over. It actually gets better. We get to be with the Lord. We continue to live, except for this time, we actually really live. There is no shortcomings. There is no failings. There is no pain. There's no suffering. There's no tears. This is why Christians are not afraid to die. This is why Christians don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns. I'm not saying we don't get sad when one of our friends or our loved ones pass away, but there is a, 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 an amazing brilliance in the idea of knowing that you get to see them again. And we don't have to, this is just a temporary separation. And we don't have to moan like the rest of the world. We don't have to, to, to mourn. We don't have to be sad in the same way because we have a hope. We have that guarantee. We have that promise. And because of this greater reality to come, Paul says we're of good courage because this, the truth is, is we're looking forward to what's coming. It is better to be with the Lord. Like I said, don't get me wrong. We still got stuff to do here. Live here with everything that you've got. Enjoy what we have here. God, God uh, doesn't intend for us to be miserable while we're here. But we do look forward to something better. Then he goes on in verses 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. How many know that it should be the goal of every single Christian to, to please the Lord? That should be your number one aim in life is to please the Lord in all that you do. And truthfully, if we had a real revelation of what Christ actually did for us, if we really understood that He came down and took everything for us, all of our pain, all of our shame, all the, the death that we deserve to die, the punishment that we deserve to receive for the sin that we have in our life, he came and took that all for us. Paid it in full. There's nothing else that we have to pay. If we had a true understanding of that, 
naturally we would want to do nothing else but to serve and please Him. That's the natural response to that. And if you think I'm being over the top, just think about the last time that you were at work or with your coworkers and somebody offered to buy you a cup of coffee. What was your natural instinct? To want to do the same for them at a later time. You wanted to, to, to return the favor. And if we think that way even with little stuff, like someone buying you a cup of coffee or somebody helping you move, so you want to return the faith, those little things, how much more so when, when, when Christ gave us everything, He held nothing back, would we not want to in return aim to please Him, to serve Him in every single thing that we do? You know, and the reality is, is this isn't our, just our goal here on earth either. I mean, when we get to heaven, that's going to be our goal as well, is to please Him in everything that we do. That's whether home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, the one who gave everything for us. How could we do anything else? It's the natural response. But the truth is that while we're on this earth, it's of particular importance. Because one day we will stand before Jesus Christ, before the judgment seat, and give an account for what we did on earth. That's what it says right here. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is every single one of us. Now to be clear, this isn't about salvation. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ... We are saved by faith alone in Him. This isn't a salvation thing. This isn't, this isn't where you go to find out if you go to heaven or hell. If you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you put your faith in Him for salvation, then you're going to heaven. But it doesn't mean that we won't give an account. And how do I know this? Because Paul's speaking to Christians here. He's speaking to the Christians in the Corinthian church. He's not speaking to unbelievers. But he says that each and every one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will receive what is due for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're going to stand before Jesus one day and we're going to give an account for everything that we've done. Romans 14.12 says the same thing. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Jesus in Matthew 12.36 says that we're going to give an account for every careless word. Now, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out because like I said, this isn't a heaven or hell thing. No matter what happens here, you still get to go to heaven. So I don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but it seems to be the place where we find out if the life that we lived after we got saved was, was uh, good or if it was worthless. She puts it here, whether good or evil. The truth is, is that we should be living our life in a way that we aim to please God. And at this point, we're either going to receive reward or we're going to suffer loss. I imagine probably a little of both in different areas of our life. 1 Corinthians 3.14-15 says that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his recommendation from God. Now I just want to keep reiterating, this is not a salvation issue. You get to heaven, you get saved, you get born again by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and receiving the free gift of salvation. 
does appear that we're going to stand and give an account. This means that once you get born again, you shouldn't be spending your whole life skating the line, seeing how close you can get to sin without touching it. Or begin to rationalize and justify the little things, saying, oh, it's not that bad, Jesus will forgive me. That's not what our goal is as a Christian. When you get born again, you're, you're changed. You're set free from the sin that used to control you. You should be running away from it, not seeing how close you can get to it. We're going to have to give an account for all of that, though. I think it's something we should all take seriously. Now, this isn't to, to, to make anybody feel guilty or to condemn you, but it's certainly something to think about. The truth is, is that that. Grace, if, you don't, if, there's, if there's no change on the other end of it, if it's all about, oh, I'll be forgiven, then, then grace is cheap. Jesus didn't die so that you could do whatever you want. He didn't die so that you could sin without, without any, any kind of penalty. He died so that you would be free from sin. And it wouldn't have that control on your life. And if we choose to live in any other way, don't think you're not going to get away from it without at least telling God why. You're going to stand before Him and give an account of your life. But Paul says, instead, just make it your aim to please God. You know what? I pray that when each and every one of us stands before that judgment seat, that we're going to receive a commendation and not a rebuke. I pray that each and every one of us, when we stand before Jesus, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Instead of going, well, done? I pray that he tells us, well done. But those are some choices that we're going to have to make. Amen? He goes on in verses 11 through 12. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So the therefore here, he's referring to what he just spoke about, the reality that all would stand before the judgment seat of God. And he says, therefore, because of that, and knowing the fear of the Lord, which is always an interesting phrase to me, this idea of the fear of the Lord. Because in, in, in the way we think about things, fear is a bad thing. And certainly, if you were thinking about your own father and you said, I'm, you know, I'm afraid of my father, that would be a bad thing. That's probably an indication that your father is not a great father if you're actually afraid of your father. But the fear of God is not the same type of fear. It's not the type of fear that people are going out looking for in that terror of the corn that's built off there off of... Uh, uh, I-10 and, and Tangerine, out by where I live, they put up a big cornfield with crazy stuff in it. And I know some people like to go and enjoy that stuff, or they go and watch scary movies, but it's always seemed odd to me because if God hasn't given me a spirit of fear, why would I go out of my way trying to get my own? <laughs> Seems weird to me. But that's not the kind of fear that this is talking about. We're not supposed to be terrified of God. First, this fear is, is, a, is an an awe-inspiring recognition of the greatness and the powerfulness of God. That's all this fear is, is understanding who He is, how great He is, how powerful He is. Think of it like this. None of us in here are afraid of electricity. 
Everybody goes and flips the light switch on, doesn't give a second thought about it. Everything in this building is running on electricity. We're not afraid of it, but if you were somebody who worked with electricity, you would have a healthy fear of electricity. While we're not afraid of electricity, we all know not to stick a fork in a light socket. Why? Because we understand the power that electricity has. And if we do that, it could harm us. It could hurt us. Not that that's electricity's intent or its goal. Electricity doesn't wake up in the morning going, man, I can't wait to zap somebody today. That's my purpose in life is to just really get somebody good. That's not its intent. That's not its goal. It's, it's just a force. It doesn't have any goals. But the same thing with God. When we look at God, we're not afraid of him in the sense, just like electricity, we're not afraid of him, but we understand the greatness and the power that he has. That's what he's talking about, the fear of Lord. He says, look, I want to persuade others. You know, that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, it's not God's desire to do that for any one of us. Matter of fact, his willingness to sit his, send his son to die and pay the penalty of every sin, that is proof that that is not his will for any of our lives. He made a way. Also, his patience with us, right? The Bible says that the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient with us, wanting to give everyone an opportunity to believe. Those are all demonstrations that that's not God's will and intent is to send anybody to hell, to destroy anybody's soul. But have no doubt, he's capable of it. He has the power and ability. So we should, we should have a healthy fear or respect and awe of something or someone who is that powerful that he can do those things. Not that it's his, we don't have to be afraid of him or terrified of God, but we should have an healthy fear, a healthy fear and understanding of his power. So he says because of that, knowing that they'll stand before God and, and understanding, having that healthy fear of God, we persuade others and this is so important that we persuade others you know one of the things that drives me crazy is when 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 people say man why are you pushing my why are you pushing your religion on me you know you can do whatever you want but just don't push that on me and it's like if you understood how much i cared about you you would understand why i'm telling you about this or people that say you know what i'm going to let my kids decide for themselves i'm not going to teach them that drives me crazy because if you're not preaching to your kids, somebody else is going to be. And here's the deal. If we really believe what we say we believe, if we really believe that without Jesus Christ that you are going to hell, that you're not born again, that you're not saved, if we really believe that, what kind of people do we have to be to not tell other people about that? The truth is, is if we don't share the gospel and we believe these things, then we're essentially condemning them. So it is our goal to persuade others. Not so we can put a feather on our cap and say, oh, I got someone else to say yes, but because we genuinely care about their souls and we don't want them to spend eternity in hell, but we want them to spend eternity in heaven with God. We want them to have the same hope that we have. That's why we persuade others. With the recognition that, yeah, we do believe what we say we do, and we know that if they don't say yes, then they will spend eternity in hell away from God. 
That should be a burden on every single one of our hearts when we look around and see people walking down the street knowing that they might not know Jesus. We need to tell them. And then Paul continues in this. He begins to talk about the, the uh, once again, if you remember, last week and the week before, really the much of this letter is Paul defending himself and Paul defending his ministry. And he goes back on kind of one of the same um, arguments he made earlier. He says, I'm telling all you this, and he says, but I'm not commending ourselves to you, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So what is he doing to do that? He says, one, I want you to know that we're known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. He's saying two things. The things that we're doing in front of God, we do it, we're doing it right inside of God. We're not being shady. We're not preaching something that's, that's, that's not godly. We're not twisting the gospel. Because we do it right in front. We are known to God. And then he says, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Remember when he said this uh, last week, or maybe it was the week before, he, he says, you guys know me. You guys, I, I worked right alongside each and every one of you guys for, for a long time. You know me. So know that what I'm saying is true. Because I stand with a clear conscience before God and, and you guys know me. I stand with a clear conscience before you. And he says, but we're not doing this. We're not commending ourselves. How many know that Paul didn't give a rat about his reputation? Paul wasn't concerned about what people thought about him. He was only concerned about what people thought about the message, about the gospel. He wanted to make sure that it wasn't slighted. He says, so I'm not commending, we're not commending ourselves to you. We're not trying to make ourselves puffed up or look good to you, but we want you to have uh, an answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In a second, we're going to see that they were probably saying Paul was crazy. He's saying, I, I don't, if when people come to you and they're boasting about their outward appearance and by contrast saying that Paul's crazy, he says, I want you to have an answer for them that are saying this stuff, that are tr these people that are trying to persuade you that I'm crazy and doing the wrong thing. I want you to have an answer for them because they boast about their outward appearance, but not about what's in their heart. Because the truth is, is these people, they may have looked good on the outside, but they had ulterior motives. They had dirty motives and they had dirty hearts. Paul says, that's not us. And he goes on in 13, but if we are beside ourselves, crazy, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says if we're a little beside ourselves, what he's saying is if we are a little crazy, it's because of God. And here's the thing is that he had an accusation that he was being crazy. He looked mad. He wasn't in his right mind. He says, well, if that's the case, it's because of God. And the truth was is that Paul was willing to endure all kinds of stuff for the gospel. He was willing to be stoned. He was willing to be imprisoned. He was willing to be shipwrecked. He was willing to be hated by others and persecuted. He was willing to even give up his life for the gospel. Now, if you're someone like that, they might consider you a little crazy. And the truth is, is that when you serve God and each and every one of people might think that you're crazy. They're going to say that you're ignorant or that you believe in fairy tales. They're going to say that you're just deceived. But the truth is, is that they're the ones that's deceived. And the truth is, is there's so much evidence for God and for Jesus and for his resurrection of the dead 
It's not something we have time to get in here, but we don't believe in fairy tales. There's certainly a ton of evidence for the existence of God and the existence of Jesus and that He rose from the dead. But the thing is, is that if you're willing to believe in this stuff, some people might call you crazy. And that's what Paul's going on. But the thing is, as Paul says, but if we were in our right mind, it's for you. The Corinthian church had experienced a sane version of Paul. Not somebody who was willing to do all this stuff, but someone who stood beside them and genuinely cared for them and loved them. And they could see his heart. That's what he said right here. He says, right? He says, it's also known to your conscience. You guys know me. You know the team that was with me. You know that we loved you. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. See, the thing is, is that the love of Christ compelled everything that Paul did. That's why he was there with them. That's why he was willing to be a little crazy looking on the outside because he loved them just like Christ did. And Christ's love for him compelled him to love others. He concluded that Jesus died for all, so we've all died. In other words... That old man, the old person that you were before you got born again is dead and gone. You are brand new. You have died by faith when Christ died on that cross. The old man is dead and gone. And then he says, And he died for all, for those who live might not longer live for themselves, but for, the, for him who for their sake died and was raised. What he's saying is that because he gave his life for us, we should be willing to give our life for him. And that's what Paul is saying. He gave his life for me. The love of Christ compelled me to give up my life for Jesus. And what that looks like right now is loving you guys and being there for the Corinthian church. And he goes on in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, and behold, the new has come. Another part of this idea of, of, of being compelled by love is that when Paul looked at people, he didn't see their old self because it was died. It has died and it was, they were made brand new. They, they, were, they, were, they were remade. That's what he says right here. And this is a great memory verse, by the way, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. You are made brand new and you receive Jesus Christ in your life. And Paul said, because of this, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh anymore. Instead, we regard them like we regard Christ. So what does he mean by that? Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer? Well, they used to know Christ as a person, as a human living on this earth, but he died and he rose again. He was glorified. He was not who he used to be, at least on exactly like he was on his earth. So we look, we look at us the same way. Not how we used to be in the flesh, but as those who have been made brand new. The old is gone. New has come. In church, this is how we should regard every other believer. Even those that wrong you. Even those that fault you. Even those that sin against you. Sometimes that stuff happens. That's the thing about living in a family. Families sometimes get messy. Families sometimes get rough. The truth is, is that there'll come a time when I'll probably irritate you and take you off. I know this because it's happened before. <laughs> but I hope 
that we would recognize that we're in a family. We would work through that stuff. I hope that you wouldn't see me in my failures, but you would see me brand new in Christ, just like I see every single one of you. Because you were brand new. You're not who you used to be. And sometimes we mess up, sometimes we slip up, but as a family, we get over it. We say we're sorry, we forgive one another, and we move on. Amen? And we review, we review each other as one who was loved by Christ, one who Christ gave his life for, and one who Christ made brand new. And then we'll go ahead and finish up. Oh, no, we've got one more after this. And he says in uh, 5, 18 through 19, says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. So all this, what he was just talking about, us being brand, brand new, being a new creation in Christ, that's the all this. He said, this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know what's interesting to me? Is that we find out in John that, that all things in creation were created through Christ. And then we find out that our new creation, our new self was created in Christ. Jesus is kind of in the creation business. Making brand new things. But he says that all this is from God, who through Christ did this. He made us new creations. And he reconciled us to himself. That means he made us right with him. That means, he made us, that means we can stand before God without any debt, without any issues. We're made right with him. And he says that's through Jesus. And then on top of that, Christ has reconciled us to himself. But then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. They seem to be having some fun back there. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, so what is from God? That, that God is reconciling the world, and that we're supposed to be entrusted with this message of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation is that God is not counting our trespasses against him because of the work that Jesus did. But it's our job to share this message. It's our job to share the gospel. Did you know this is what Paul is talking about in the book of Colossians? Colossians 24 says this, and you may have wondered what this has meant. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. And if you read about that, the point Paul is making is that that I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm putting up with this stuff to make up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. You know what the one thing that Jesus didn't do on that cross? He didn't preach the gospel. That's our job. That's what was lacking in Christ's affliction was that he made everything right. He did all the work. He did everything for us, but we're still supposed to tell the world about it. That's the ministry of reconciliation. We've been entrusted this message. And then we'll finish up in verse 20 through 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal to the world through us. And we're ambassadors. That means we're representatives of Christ. When people see us, they should see Christ. The problem is, though, is as soon as you say you're a Christian, when people see you, they see Christ. But if you're acting a fool and not living like a Christian, they still see Christ. You've just misrepresented Christ. And now they've attributed to Christ something that is not Him. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors to Christ, God making His appeal through us. 
And Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. What is Paul's persuading him? Persuading anyone who would read this letter to be reconciled with God. Because he said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, listen, we want to persuade you to be reconciled in God. Because the reality is, is that Jesus Christ became sin. He didn't have to. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. But he still took on our sin. He became sin, and sin died with him. That's why sin doesn't have a hold on you anymore when you, when you receive Christ as your Savior, because sin is separated from you. It doesn't have a hold on you anymore. You know, before you're saved, it's impossible not to sin. But once you get born again, sin is dead to you. And you don't have to sin. When we sin, is because we take a peek at who we used to be. We slip into our old ways instead of putting on Christ and walking in our new creation. But he said that he became sin, the one who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're not our own righteousness, we're his righteousness. We've been given righteousness for God's benefit so that we could be with him. So church, I would encourage you, just like Paul is saying, remember, you are an ambassador of Christ. And when you see people around you, you should be encouraged and, and, even, and even have a burden to share the gospel with others so that they can have the very same hope that you have. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.